Irish Jesuit and you're a theologian steeped in the synodal process and have been involved in Ireland here in the whole series of meetings that resulted in sending somebody to the Synod on Synodality in Rome. That finished at the end of October for this year. There'll be another one next year. And I'm really wondering about your reaction to what happened there, what came out of it, the synthesis. What are your reflections on the whole process to date now? Yeah, I think there's two things that come to my mind. One, judging by what the participants themselves said, and there was a good few of them came out, both during and afterward, mainly afterwards, I think it was a very rich experience for them. Challenging. I mean, they were there for four weeks and they had a lot of listening to do. And it was quite a regimented way of doing it. They had this conversation in the spirit where you were in a group of 12. One was facilitating, the rest were participants. And they listened to each person having a chance for four minutes to say, and then they prayed, and then they gave their responses. And so it was a lot of listening. But what came out from the way the participants spoke about it and in the synthesis report itself was an endorsement that this was a good way of proceeding and an endorsement of the whole synodal pathway approach. So I think that was important because this was at a level in the church that hadn't happened before. So mainly bishops, but a very good minority, but not token presence of the non-ordained, including 54 women which was unprecedented in the history of the church. So that was heartening to realise that the participants themselves, I'm assuming that most of those will go back next year for the second leg. And I think the second leg probably will come up with more decisions. This was their first time together. Timothy Radcliffe was excellent. He talked about forming a community of friends and they mingled, they had coffee, they had meals together, they prayed together. So over the period of four weeks, I'd say a lot of friendships were formed and informal contacts made. And they began to understand where individuals and where regions were coming from and their different concerns. That was excellent and it bodes well for 11 months time when they reconvene. Because they did emphasise, I think, in that synthesis and as Mm. a result that that process was really an important way Mm. of doing things and recommended that it be extended Mm. in wider circles within the church. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was the process that was used in Ireland right through from the start. So we were familiar with it. It has the great advantage that it allows differences to air without degenerating into a row, you know, that people listen very carefully what the other is saying, even when they don't like what the other is saying. And so that that methodology helps a lot with that. But that's the second thing that encouraged me. In the synthesis report, there was also a critique of that methodology. And the critique was that while absolutely successful, and while it should be privileged in the way of going forward, it has its limitations. And it spelled out what the limitations were. And the limitations were that it didn't allow sufficient room for ideas, for the intellectual, for the theological, for the human sciences, for dialogue with the world in that sense. And that struck me as very, very interesting and very important. And it comes up several times in the course of the synthesis I wouldn't say it's highlighted. Most of the reports I've heard from people talking about the synod since have said 
this is the methodology that we used and it was successful. But it's down in black and white that they admit the limitations. And so what's emerging is the need for not just the affective, the spiritual response, but also for the world of ideas and analysis and debate and to be somehow integrated, not to put it in such a way that it highlights the divisions, but to find some way of drawing on the expertise of theologians, of canonists, of anthropologists, of scientists of different kinds, and to try and make this, to deepen the whole approach. And that, to me, once you begin to say that, and then they referenced in particular, they wanted study done on two documents that the International Theological Commission had come out with over the last few years. One is on the sense of faith of the faithful, and the other is on synodality. Now, if they look carefully at those two documents, what they'll find is, one, that a synod is a privileged time to discern the sense of faith of the faithful, so the ordinary people. Two, they'll find when there occurs a divergence between the sense of faith of the ordinary people and church teaching on particular issues, there's a protocol as to how to tackle that. And the way you tackle it is either you seek to improve your communication, you clarify particular doctrine, but if that fails and people are still dissatisfied, you then are faced with reformulating or in the case of non-dogmatic teaching, and all the teaching we're referring to here, the controversial issues are non-dogmatic. If you still find that the reformulation doesn't do, you have to revise and you revise by getting theologians to look at it and dialogue with the human sciences. Elsewhere in the synthesis document, it says that on some of the controversial issues that perhaps our anthropological categories aren't sufficiently developed because we haven't had a dialogue with the human sciences sufficiently open. And so we're operating out of a deficient anthropology and therefore, to rectify that, we have to have a deeper engagement and dialogue with the human sciences and implicitly change our anthropology. That would work out particularly perhaps in something like the LGBTQ. That's one of the ones that they actually refer to. They don't use LGBTQ, but they use the notion of sexual identity. It would also, of course, impact on the whole role of women in the church. So the anthropology that we're operating at at the moment is that kind of equal but complementary and then spelling out complementary in a distinctive kind of way that wouldn't be shared by a lot of anthropologists. And so so that whole thing to me is theological dynamite. I don't know to what extent the participants themselves understood what they were saying, but some clever people did who were writing that document and they got it passed through with more than two thirds majority for each paragraph. And if you marry that with the fact that coming up to the synod itself, the Pope spoke with Portuguese Jesuits and then he replied formally to the dubia of the four cardinals. And among the things he said in those two instances was that doctrine evolves. He doesn't use the phrase develops, which is the usual development of dogs. Doctrine evolves. Just say doctrine evolves. Doctrine evolves. And he gave concrete instances. He talked about slavery 
And that's the clear one that everybody talks about. It's non-controversial doctrine. It's clearly evolved and has changed. And then the other one he gave was one that he had been responsible for himself, was the death penalty, which had changed in the catechism. And he also mentioned down further in that dubia one, which was very interesting, he repeated his own adherence to current church teaching on the ordination of women. But he said that the note attached to it at the time by John Paul II and by the CDF, as it was then, was that this was definitive teaching. He said that term definitive has not been theologically agreed and therefore this is open for further study. So that was amazing that he said that. So if you again marry that with the talk that Ormond Rush, the Australian theologian, gave to all the assembled people, and I'm thinking of all these people, cardinals and bishops and patriarchs and laywomen and religious women and men, coming from different contexts, you know, different continents, Africa and so on. And what he was saying to them was that he had listened carefully for the three weeks and he thought that a lot of the roots of the divergences among the group, so there were a lot of convergences, but there were divergences as well. So a lot of the roots of the divergence was different ideas of what tradition meant. And he went back to Vatican II And he said, Joseph Ratzinger, in his commentary on Vatican II, very astutely observed that there were two notions of tradition. One was static, ahistorical, propositional. The other was based on the fact that Revelation was an encounter with Jesus Christ. It was dynamic, it was personalist, and it was sacramental. And Ratzinger favoured the second, the latter. Which is... Surprising maybe to some people, Very I think, you know, what the first one yeah. is what he would have gone for, the sort of the tradition like a museum mm. that you go and visit and mm. say there mm. it's all done for mm. you, you don't have to mm. work it out. But mm. that's fascinating. That No, because even later on when he was very traditional in the sense that we pejoratively use that term and conservative, but he was also a very good theologian. So this kind of disjunction between what they called a hermeneutic of continuity and one of discontinuity. He didn't come down on the continuity side of that at all. He said what we need is a hermeneutic of reform. And so by reform, he meant that there was a core element of revelation, principles of which were unchanging, but that when that met with the culture and the historical contingencies of life and history as it developed, it required a different formulation. And we know from Pope Francis himself that that different formulation can actually mean a change, a revision. So to me, this talking that's gone on over the last few years started with a firm assertion by a lot of Episcopal conferences, including our own, that synods were not about church teaching, that this was a pastoral. They used that phrase pastoral as if it had nothing to do with To me, it's very clear that if you're being pastoral and if you're being missionary, the way you talk about women, the way you talk about gay people, the way you talk about sexuality in general matters because our mission becomes incredible to so many people if we are talking in a way that doesn't make sense to them in their intimate, ordinary lives. So the fact that whoever has happened through all the talking 
that we've got to a point where a synthesis document can now begin to point to things and say the anthropology is insufficient. We should be looking at that document there, which goes on to talk about divergences between church teaching and the sense of the faithful. This is, to me, a wonderful opening of a door that hadn't been opened yet. And it remains to be seen whether we go through it. I don't take anything for granted about this, the way the cynic can go, because I think in one sense, though, it's been exciting and it's been for those involved in it and it's been difficult. Obviously, one hears that. This is still the easy part because it's just listening and absorbing what others think. For the most part, we haven't had to make decisions and for the credibility of the process, we will have to make decisions at some point. You can't keep inviting people back to say, what do you think of that? What do you feel about that? And so on. You have to make decisions. And to be fair to, to, the, to the document, they have pointed to decisions, for example, that councils, parish councils and diocesan pastor guides should be mandatory. They've said that canon law should be introduced. And that's a big thing, actually, because I run into it again and again that you find that in Ireland here, the parish is going well. The priest works with his parish council and they work well and they're very respectful and they effectively, they do take decisions together. Then he's changed or he dies or he moves on That's and right. somebody comes in and has a very different approach and may not want a parish council law and can always appeal to canon law and say, well, this is discretionary. So that changes. And that's why I think John O'Malley was so good, the late John O'Malley, the Jesuit historian, when he talked about Vatican II, he said the ideas were great, but the translation of the ideas and the values into institutional, structural, legal form, which sounds very dull, didn't happen. And therefore they didn't root, they didn't take root. And that's interesting even just take that parish example of the parish council oh. because one of the things that the synthesis and it was very strong on was that recommendation of that synodal process in all mm. aspects of mm. church life because very often even if there is a parish council the parish mm. priest holds the final say and mm. you're it's almost like an advisory but then I'll make the final mm. decision whereas mm. if, if you feel it's really adopting the true synodal process mm it's much more hopeful. I think they're grappling well with that and that there isn't probably any perfect way of doing it. The phrase going into the synod was co-responsibility. Mm. The phrase coming out of the synod was differentiated co-responsibility. So they're trying to allow some role still for the bishop, for example, that we are in a church which believes that bishops have some kind of distinctive office. But they're also trying to say the bishop won't function well either as a leader or as a teacher unless he is listening very very carefully and not just in a token kind of way to his diocese how do you institutionalize that and there were different suggestions coming up in the synod itself do you for example have a synod like the one we've just had with a significant minority of non-ordained people there so it was ecclesial synodality in the bishop's synod. Do you have that and afterwards have a bishop's synod on its own? Or what sort of combination do you have? And in the dialogue with the Anglican Church, we've already had some learnings in this part of the world about the way that they do things. And I think too easily we've categorised that as parliamentary or... Democracy. Ooh, yeah, democracy and so on. And in fact... 
we shouldn't be so dismissive. They've had long centuries of trying to come up to, they recognise that we may be able to help with our notion of discernment and really trying to find the spirit. But in the end, there has to be the give and take of arguments. There has to be voting in the end. Now, you would hope that you get some kind of consensus, but consensus oughtn't to be confused with unanimity. You won't get unanimity in human affairs. And in Vatican II, you did get considerable majorities in the end. Things had to go through lots of drafts and there were compromises along the way until people were... And that's the way I think it's going to have to happen. And that's why this methodology of conversation in the spirit or spiritual conversation, it was called beforehand, is not enough on its own. And it wasn't in the Synod either. They had to vote in the end, and they did vote. And there were various remarks about the numbers and all this kind of stuff. So you have to have some of that. And it's not an easy thing to give a distinctive role to bishops. And on the other hand, to really honour the fact that people, baptised people, have the Holy Spirit in them and have a share in the governing role of Jesus Christ, in the teaching role of Jesus Christ, and that that needs to be more, as I say, than just token that needs to be real and I was very heartened by that the wonderful example of it and this is the way change sometimes happens it requires courage on the run up to this synod in Rome there was the European synod in Prague and Pope Francis has always talked about trying to reimagine the church as an inverted pyramid so trying to do away with the Pope at the top and so on so our delegation went to that synod having experienced the consultation in Ireland and fresh with what we had produced from Ireland, there were four members of it. So two married women and then Eamon Martin, Archbishop of Armagh, and Eamon Fitzgibbon, priest of the Limerick Diocese. Julianne, who is one of the married women, is now the secretary of the Bishop's Synodal Group. She tells the story, and she's told it publicly, about being very conscious. She was living and thinking synodality when she went to that meeting in Prague. The meeting, ironically, was held in the Pyramid Hotel, which was (laughs) just one of those (laughs) quirks of history. She wore a green dress. She was very conscious she was there representing Ireland, and she went into that meeting. She went in the first morning to discover rows of chairs and then platform at the top of the room and about 10 chairs at a table and eventually it became clear that all the chairs were occupied by men and they were all clerics of different kind with suitable attire. So at the break, at the coffee break, she gave vent to various people and when they reconvened at the after the break, somebody at the top had the nouse, or he was maybe stupid, but he said, maybe somebody down there would like to to say something, because all the men had given these speeches. And she was up like a shot. And she said, do you not get it? Synodality, because even the logo for the whole synodal thing had one bishop, but it had the bishop in the middle of a whole group of men and women, boys and girls, people in wheelchairs, everything. It was kind of, she says, the visuals, even the visuals are terrible. This is not synodality. And there was shock in the room. I mean, I can imagine the effect it would have had because up to then everyone was being very nice to one another and polite and so on. So that was the last time in those five days that that top table was like that. They reconfigured, they had lay people, they had women and so on. And then when it came to the synod in Rome, 
all the tables were round tables. They were all mixed with men and women. And on the first morning, I watched the opening of it in, through EWTN. Cardinal Hullerich, who who's the Jesuit Archbishop of Luxembourg and was a big figure in the Synod, he gave an address and he said, I want you first to look at the way this room is laid out. Look at the round tables, look at the composition of participants at each table. This is not just a question of organisation or sociology, this is theology. And he gave a whole ecclesiology about synodality, baptism. And I said to myself, well, look, Here's a woman gets up in a room in Prague. She's annoyed by what's happened. And look at the effect. And that's the synodal process fully in action because you have the experience, Mm. the reflection, the Mm. sharing, Mm. the listening, because Mm. they did listen Mm. and they did change it. Mm. But then you have the theology of Mm. it, the social Mm. science of it. That's Mm. really Mm. what Mm. you're saying is really important. And Mm. that's why I'm very interested in that, would you call it that door, that new door, because Mm. it seems to me that is a place of great hope. That's a threshold. Now, the thing I would say to you then, Jerry, is that won't be reinventing the wheel if they put the two together because the social science is there and have done the work. Theologians have been doing the work. There's lots of theologians who have rejected the doctrinal anthropology that underpins, for example, the role of women in the church. There are people who have written bravely and spoken out about LGBTQ and gender identity and from an anthropological and scientific point of view, a social science point of view, and even from a theological point of view. Now, they mightn't have got much traction and some of them have been silenced, but the work's done or at least is there to be engaged with. Would you agree, number one, with what I've said? That's just my opinion, but I can think, I mean, yourself, the theological... A lot of this has to do with moral issues and moral theology, and I wouldn't be an expert in moral theology, but I know enough about the field to know that since the late 1960s, a lot of that work has been done, and a lot of the voices who would have articulated a counter view, if you like, to what the official view was, a lot of those voices, for one reason or another, were discouraged and were silenced. Not to put a tooth in it, that that's what happened. I know of people in my own generation who might have wanted to go on to moral theology and decided not to because they knew they wouldn't get the right answers, to put it crudely. And it was a terrible thing to see because what you were seeing was talk a lot about the church not being a democracy, but we hope to have freedom within the church. Carl Rahner had spoken about that back in the 50s and 60s, the right of freedom and the value of what he called his majesty's loyal opposition, that that was an important part of any body and certainly the church. But that was discouraged, it really was. And so without sort of harping back to old sores or anything, I do agree that once this re-engagement with the human sciences and science in general begins, and the attention to the experience of Catholics themselves, that lived experience, doesn't require a whole generation. It doesn't require 20 years. The work is done. There hasn't been a theological consensus around agreement with the Church's teaching on these issues. On the contrary, there has been a strong, significant minority of people who do agree and who express it well, and one has to engage with that. But an awful lot of theologians don't agree. 
and I have written about it and expressed it. So once there is some commitment, as there is in this document, to begin to engage at that level with theology, then it's quite true that a lot of the work has been done and just remains then, it's a kind of generosity of spirit that's required here. I feel for people who, if you like, are stuck with the notion of tradition that has such an emphasis on that static Lonergan talked about that long, long time ago, the classicist mentality and the historicist mentality. And so some people are very wedded to that. And yet, in the example that I gave with Julianne and that you picked up well in terms of it mirroring so many facets of synodality, the encounter with other people can be very affecting. It can change us. I think that's probably the way most of us change, whether it's with our children or our grandchildren or those who are dear to us. They come out with things or they do things which make us step back and re-examine our own presuppositions. Which is what Jesus did in the Gospels. All it was an the encounter. Time, all the time. And, and got challenged himself by the Canaanite exactly. woman, for example. And that seems to me to be the great strength of the synodal process and this conversation and the spirit that's gone on. And so I would envisage that people who were participants in Rome must be feeling quite shocked at the moment, like the stimuli, the stuff that was coming in from all over the world. It's quite a thing to try to digest that. And my presumption always is these are good people who want what's best for the church. And so there is something there that the root of it all is what Pope Francis talks about, conversion. And I suppose all of us have to be ready to be converted. And it's quite a thing. It demands great generosity and openness but I have to say when I started off with this kind of thing I hadn't bought into the whole idea that this involves so much the relationship with Jesus and with faith I was all into reorganizing the church and I thought the church needed reformation as well as renewal and I still think the church needs reformation but rooting it in Jesus and the encounter with Jesus and therefore the encounter with one another is a masterstroke it really is because it opens up space of respect and that kind of call on us to be generous in responding to the sincerity of somebody else and, as we will go along, the ideas of somebody else. So I do think it's a time of great hope. As I say, I don't think there's any certainty. There never is. We have to keep going back and asking the Spirit's guidance, but really in a way that was unimaginable. Even five years ago, doors have opened up and are opening up all the time. Just finally, obviously there's the issues of social justice. We don't want to forget mm. poverty, the the first world, developing world gaps that were all addressed there. And then also, I suppose, the more Western issues of LGBTQ, gender identity, mm. women's mm. role and ecological conversion. Mm. They were all there. They were all there. And I suppose on a lot of those we have terrific agreement. There is agreement in terms of poverty, in terms of ecology, in terms of immigration, war and peace. The challenge is to really engage with those effectively and particularly like how do, for example, more poor people get inserted into the syndal process? So rather than talking about poor people to actually create a more welcoming space for, for poor people to enter. But you're quite right that they are the big issues that the Pope is all the time encouraging us to focus on. And the fact that we in the West sometimes 
focus more narrowly on internal church issues at its best i think is a recognition that if we can do that well we will be more effective in reaching out that if we don't do it well our words and our gestures to the outside seem somehow hollow and empty so there is that kind of i was a bit surprised actually that whereas Polygamy is mentioned in this document in sympathy to the African context and very good. There is no mention of secularization. It's extraordinary. There is no mention of secularization. That's a huge thing in our part of the world. It's probably a sign of the de-Europeanization of the church, you know, that we've moved away from seeing Europe at the centre. But we will have to focus on those things in our part of the world. The fact that we don't want to be colonial and don't want to impose things doesn't mean that the issues we feel aren't important. And so those issues, and thank God the issue, for example, of women seems to be rather universal, maybe not with the same emphasis. So a lot of the communities in Africa and in Latin America who don't have a priest and so on are led by women. It's very clear, and the document itself says it's women who are to the forefront in terms of the faith, in terms of the practice, in terms of the transmission of faith, so all the kind of things which we know so well. And it's just mind-boggling that it's taken so long. And that's why I do have sympathy with, even though I don't sometimes sympathise with the way she says it, I do have sympathy with Mary McAleese and the way she is very forthright in expressing some of her views, because... We've asked people to be patient for a long, long time, and I can well understand that there's a holy impatience as well, which, and that's why I do think that we have to be careful. The Jesuit Orobator is African, he's now in America. He says, we've reached the point on some of these issues where we can't keep kicking the can down the road. It's time for action. And I think that's a call we should heed. Finally. Jerry, there's a year now. Is this like the year of hibernation where everything goes away or is there working on behind the scenes or what's happening? Do you know? Yeah, I think there's hibernation, certainly. Timothy Radcliffe was very fond of this metaphor of sowing seeds and it germinates silently in the ground and so on. No, there will be... What we expect is that the Synod Office in Rome under Mario Grech and Natalie Baker will begin to commission studies on various issues. The Irish church and will begin to ask local churches to respond probably along the lines of what significant issues do you think we should be trying to further at the moment. The Irish hierarchy in the meantime, they had a synodal pathway committee which I was on. That's finished its work. It, it finished it last month. But we have suggested through a report that will be published shortly that there be a series of mini synods, if you like, on specific issues prepared for by theologians in dialogue with other sciences and so on, as well as using the conversational and spirit method. So that presumably will begin to kick in, I would expect, after Christmas, probably sometime around then. So there is definite commitment to continuing this and I do think as well it would be good if our two participants at the Synod, Bishop Brendan Leahy and Bishop Alan McGuckian, said something back to the Irish people about their experience. I think that would be important because, in a sense, we sent them. It was on foot of the consultation over the years. So we need to hear back, even if it's just to say something along the lines I've said, maybe without some of the things that they don't agree with me on, but just to say, look, this synod 
was a rich experience. It was a very demanding experience and we're committed to following up on it and we're committed to keeping on this idea of a listening church and that what goes on in Ireland does have an impact. And we saw that very clearly with the abuse issue. Again, I want just to finish on that because it's so important that the Irish focus on abuse, understandably maybe, was taken up at Prague by the Europeans and has fed into this international document, including the response by some who'd been abused. That was part of our submission to Rome. And so the church realises that that is still an open wound, that we haven't yet found an adequate way to... Various attempts have been made and good attempts, but we need to do more and we need to listen more to those who have been affected and their families. So that, to me, again will be one of the ways, the asset tests, if you like, of the success of this, that on those very difficult issues, can we bring healing and reconciliation in the way of the gospel, in the way of Jesus Christ, it always goes back to Jesus Christ. So I think that is a very important aspect of it.